All right, so leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out there on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12 disciples around him, and said, whoever wants to be the first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child amongst them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told them to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who's not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fire of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, church. I feel like I always have to like get situated and get up here. What a passage. What a passage we have this morning. Uh, we, as we jump in here, I just want to remind us, Mark, we've been going through this gospel. We say, say this every week. Mark is written for disciples. It's a roadmap for discipleship to Jesus. And in a time where there's a lot of confusion about what's going on, who we are, and what we should be doing, Mark's gospel is a roadmap for us, uh, for the people of God, in the way to follow Jesus. And this morning, our passage is no different. It is that. And at first glance, honestly, like an initial reading of this passage, it almost feels like a mashup of a bunch of teachings of Jesus kind of thrown together. But Mark has something for us in this passage uh, for us to learn as disciples in this passage. So let's dive in a little bit this morning and see what Mark has for us to learn. If you remember last week, we talked about this amazing story, the glory of the transfiguration when, when uh, Christ's humanity is peeled back and we get this picture of the divinity of, of Christ. We see this plan put in place of redemption, his place in that plan. And then following that, there's this debacle, this, 
this situation that happens where the disciples are being asked to deliver this little boy from a demonic power. And the disciples prayerlessly attempted to do that, and it was a mess. They couldn't do it. So Christ comes, Jesus comes, and he delivers the young boy. And he tells his disciples that the reason they had no power was because that they tried to do this in their own power. So after their inability to deliver the young boy, Jesus, it seems, he wants to get some time away with his disciples. He wants to take them away and continue this teaching, this reforming of who they are. In discipleship for Jesus, his goal was not just that these guys would be informed with proper theology of the incarnation. His goal was not that they would be, his goal was that they would be transformed by means of the person and work of the Messiah that they were following. That his goal was that their hearts would become hearts of faith and that they would live completely different. That was Christ's goal. That's Christ's goal for us in discipleship. And so as our passage opens up, Jesus is sort of sneaking through Galilee, it seems. He's gained a lot of notoriety. When he goes places, typically a crowd is gathered. But he's looking for a place where he can have some time with the disciples and begin to teach them and sort of reform, continue the process of reforming them. And we get to this verse in verse 31, Mark 9, 31. Again, I think we get to the essence, really, of what Jesus came to do. This is the crux of his mission on the earth. This is why he is here. His reason for coming was not to be a great miracle worker, and by being a great miracle worker, perhaps he could relieve some of the suffering. His purpose was not just to be a great teacher that unfolds the truths of the kingdom. The epicenter, the centrality, the crux of his mission was the cross and the tomb. It's what he came to do. We could spend our whole lives pondering this amazing truth. The God of creation took on flesh, humbled himself to the point of death. He allowed himself to be handed over, to be mocked, beaten, unfairly tried, ultimately killed. That's the truth that we could spend forever and we will spend forever pondering. The story doesn't just end there. After three days in the grave, he rose and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father forever. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. This is, this is the gospel. This is the stuff that we believe. And for the second time now in Mark's gospel, Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to the cross. A few weeks ago, we looked at the first of these calls. And Jesus predicts his death. And then he calls his disciples and he says that they are to take up their cross and to follow him. This week, this passage, is he's continuing this process of re-educating his disciples into the implications of what it means to follow him. Honestly, I, I can't help to feel a little bit sorry for these guys. If you think about it, earlier in the gospel, 
Jesus said things in code. And they didn't get it. The parables were secret, hidden messages that they gradually learnt away from the crowds in houses how to understand. They struggled to get their minds around the fact that he often said things that have clear meaning at surface level, but he wants them to look for something under the surface and to find hidden meaning elsewhere. And now, in hindsight, as the reader, as we read this, we can tell that Jesus has something very plain, and he means it quite literally. He's going to be handed over and killed. And not surprisingly, they're a little bit puzzled. They're looking for, like, is there hidden meaning here? What's actually going on? Some commentators point to the fact that it's possible that there's some, there's some uh, linguistic things that we don't catch in the, in the English, and actually you wouldn't catch in the Greek, but in the Aramaic that they were probably speaking, the word for crucify is to exalt, it's, it's to lift up. And so it's possible that if that's the word Jesus was using, they could be really, really confused. The last time Jesus predicted, this is in chapter 8, his upcoming death, his passion. If you remember, Peter ends up kind of getting rebuked. There's that whole, like, you don't have in mind the things of God, but of Satan. So apparently the guys didn't even want to speak up. They were afraid to even ask. Again, we can't reiterate how bizarre a suffering Messiah would have sounded to these guys. Nobody was expecting a Messiah that would suffer. They were looking for this victorious cloud rider, this language, the son of man. That's, that's a, it's a hyperlink back to Daniel and this picture of this cloud rider that would come and he would make all things right. Nobody was expecting this suffering servant as the Messiah. So the disciples are a little bit puzzled, even afraid, to ask what the heck he's talking about. Now immediately after this lesson on the essence of Christ's ministry, Jesus leads his disciples to Capernaum. They end up at a house that's probably, honestly, one of the disciples' family homes. And it says that on the way, which... Remember a couple weeks I said, look for those, those three words on the way. As you're reading, as you're studying this, this passage, look for those three words through the rest of the gospel. Because Jesus is now on the way to the cross. So it says, on the way, Jesus observed that these guys had quite an argument. Honestly, it's a little shocking that these guys are arguing. And when Jesus asks his disciples what they were arguing about, they didn't want to tell him. Kind of like caught children. They knew that what they were talking about, what they were arguing about was wrong. But they had been caught by the master. Parents, we've all experienced this with our children. They're caught and they're like, oh. Maybe just our kids. Uh, 
Well, he knew. Jesus knew. He knew what they were arguing about. He knew that on the heels of what he had just talked about, about the fact that he was going to the cross, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Let's put this in in context. This is the second time, like I said, in Mark that Jesus directly predicts with some detail his coming death. This time, Jesus talks about his death that he was marching towards. His discussion is then immediately followed by the disciples. uh, Sorry, the last time, he tells them that they're going to take up their cross and follow him also. He says, not only am I going to carry a cross, but if you want to follow me, you must pick up your cross. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago now. He says, you must die to, this, to your centrality in the universe. You must die to the glory of you. You must die to your own little kingdom. You must live for mine. That's, that's the essence of what he was getting at. And here, Jesus has been explaining to them for the second time what it means to be a disciple what it looks like to follow Jesus in the way of the cross. And it's shocking then that immediately following that, their argument is, who's the greatest? Jesus' eyes are fixed on martyrdom. They're preoccupied with the question of status and power. Sin has a way of filling us with the desire for our own greatness. Sin pressures us into the center of our own universe. Sin makes us think that everything is about us. I've heard it said that the most seductive idol is the idol of self. Let's be honest with ourselves here. We might not be arguing specifically about who's the greatest among us. Maybe you are. I, I could see some people having that conversation. But I know that right now we're in a heated, let's just say a heated political climate. And I know that right now there is heated discussions about political parties, agendas, candidates, When we think of an agenda or a candidate or a party that we've aligned ourselves to and which is the greatest, do we demean and talk harshly? Do we argue with someone in a different group that doesn't think the same as us? We're doing the same thing. We do this. This is part of what we do. We argue over who's the greatest, who has the greatest opinion. Somehow, sin causes us to forget God. It causes us to forget the reason that we even have breath. And to put yourself in the one place that you must never be into the center of the universe. We all do this. I'm sure that I'm not the only one that's done this this week. We put ourselves... We have a moment of self-righteousness, of arrogance, a put-down. Yelling at your child and walking away, spending money that you don't have. We all do this. We put ourselves into the center of the universe. Our culture is full of it. Our politics is full of this. Celebrities, the workplace, it's all about climbing the ladder, making 
yourself look good. Social media fuels this. Look at how great I am, how perfect my life is, my family, my whatever is. This is what social media is. So once again, Jesus patiently teaches his disciples. He sits them down in the house and he begins to teach them. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child and he put it in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus flips the argument. He says, the first must be last. You must become a servant of all. That's what Jesus did, right? He's saying, if you want to be great, become a servant. This should not surprise us. We know that the scriptures teach that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So he uses a child sort of as a picture parable. In, in Aramaic, again, the language these guys were probably speaking, there's a little bit of a play on words here. Child and servant are the same word. Children culturally had very little value. A child represented the lowest order of social status. They were one that was under control, under the authority and care of others, and had not yet achieved the right of self-determination. What he's saying is, what, is this, what does this child represent? This child has no power, has no position, has no status. They have nothing. The child has nothing that he can offer you. And in receiving that child and loving that child and serving that child, you forsake your desire for all of those things. For power, for status, position. You forsake all of that to love that child. Child has nothing to give you. There's nothing in it for you. That's what's being taught here. And when you do that, you get what the kingdom is about. You get why Christ came in the first place. You get why the Father sent him. That's the humility that God's talking about when he says that he resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. This is to say, this is what, what he's saying, to be my disciple, to be great in the kingdom, you need to care for and receive the insignificant and seemingly worthless, the ones that, have no, that add no value to your life. This is modeled in Jesus. This is what he did. And when we care for and receive someone like that, we are really receiving and caring for Jesus and thus the Father. That's the beautiful trade in it there for us. What happens next in the narrative is, is a little odd, actually. It's almost like there's this assurance of close relationship. This is intimate time. And uh, it somehow reminds John of this unsuccessful attempt to stop this outsider exorcist. So he interrupts Jesus. I found it interesting. It's worth pointing out just like a side note here. In the three times that Jesus predicts his death, 
each time a different one of Jesus' inner circle is highlighted. In chapter 8, we talked about Peter. Here, we're looking at John. John is, this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark John is isolated. And then in the next one in chapter 10, it's James and John. But James is highlighted. Just interesting that, that all three are called out. So what happened is apparently they came across this guy who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They're outraged, shocked, and dismayed. Who is this guy? So they run to Christ and say, Teacher, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Notice that last word. Wasn't following us. That's the important word there. This is sort of ironic, if you remember last week, because these are the guys who just a little bit before this had attempted to do the same thing in their own power, and they had failed. These are the same guys who had just gotten into an argument over who is the greatest. They had, there's a little bit of pride happening here, right? These guys tried to cast out a demon, and they couldn't do it. And they see this guy who's not a part of the inside circle. He's not following the disciples. And he's having success. So they're kind of ticked off. So they're rebuked by Christ. He says, don't stop him. No one who does a mighty work in my name will will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not for me, sorry, is not against us, is for us. Jesus said, Don't you understand? Anybody who works in my name is an ally and an ally for the kingdom. Why would would you be bothered by that? It's like Jesus is saying, ultimately, I'm looking for thousands and thousands and thousands of disciples that would see the power in my name and follow after me and do the works and do the things that I do. It's not about your little club. We can turn, if, we, if we're honest, we can turn our church, our community, the groups that you're a part of, you can turn that into this, a self-righteous little club. Think that it's about us, more about us than it is about God's plan for the community that we're in. And he says this, Jesus says, even a redemptive act as small as a cup of water will not go without reward. When we begin to step out of our own kingdom, quit serving ourselves and begin even in the smallest way to serve Jesus, he's not going to rebuke us. He's going to reward us. The disciples have it all wrong. It's not about them and their group. It's about Jesus and his kingdom. Now, almost as if like picking up where he left off before John interrupted him, Jesus continues to emphasize the way of discipleship is the way of the cross. The way of the Messiah is the way of sacrifice and laying down of our lives to take up our cross. Let's look at verse 42. It says, Whoever causes one of the little 
one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It's intense. When Jesus here talks about little ones, I don't think he's actually talking about children in this context. I think little ones who believe helps kind of distinguish that he's talking with affectionate terms about those of us who believe. What he's saying is that we should take seriously the influence that we would have, that he has through us in the lives of the people that are right around us. We should pay close attention to the influence that we have. You've been chosen to be a part of what God is doing through the lives of the people that are around you. It's not your choice. You've been brought into the family and given a job in the kingdom. None of us should feel comfortable just being consumers of the faith, coming here on Sunday morning and consuming teaching and worship. None of us should be comfortable with that. That's not what we're called to do. We've been called to be instruments in God's hands and the lives of the people around us. We should ask this question. We should ask, what is the nature of my influence in the lives of the people around me? Am I representing God well? Am I representing Jesus well? This passage says that it's a terrible thing to cause another person to stumble. Causing to stumble could have two meanings here. It could mean to cause them to doubt or question. It's possible that the way that you live, the way that you confess that you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, if you're living inconsistent, you could have people around you that are asking, like, if, if that's what a Christian is, I don't know that I want to be that. If that's what Jesus is like, I don't want to be a part of that. It could also mean to cause the stumble. It could also mean to tempt somebody to sin. Maybe by my anger or self-righteousness or selfishness, things that I do, I actually tempt somebody to do what is evil in God's sight. That's a terrible thing. Jesus uses strong words. It would be better if a millstone was hung around your neck and you were dropped into the sea. Millstone is this huge circular stone that was used for grounding, grinding up wheat. This punishment would have been familiar to the listeners. It was a common way the Romans used to punish insurrectionists. So Christ, Jesus moves, from, moves to the seriousness of sin in terms of our own lives. And he does this with a word picture, and he couldn't really be any more graphic than he gets here. Let's read this, starting verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. To illustrate the seriousness here, 
Jesus chooses three rather important body parts. Possibly these are, these are like gateways to your struggle, your hands, your eyes, your feet. Do your feet take you where you shouldn't go? Do your hands reach to things that you should not desire? Do your eyes look for things you shouldn't consider? These are, it's a powerful word picture. Now, there's nothing wrong with your arms, your eyes, your feet. But if they cause you to stumble, they need to go, is what Jesus is saying. Obviously, this is hyperbole. This is Jesus is drawing a, a very extreme example to paint a picture for you. He's not calling for mass amputation, so please don't go home and cut off your hand. Um... There's nothing wrong with your arms, your feet, your eyes, inherently. There's nothing wrong with social media, for instance. But I think the question here is, is it causing you to stumble? There's nothing wrong with politics, inherently. But if it's causing you to be divisive and angry and not allowing you to see others with the eyes of Christ, cut it out. There was a point in my, Naomi and I were just talking about this, there was a point in my life, in my early 20s, where I was listening to a lot of political talk radio. And a good friend of mine, I remember I was at breakfast, I think it was breakfast with a buddy of mine, and he called me out as divisive and angry sounding. And I was like, ouch. (laughs) And uh, he was right. I had like, It was like all that was coming out of me was divisiveness and anger. I was very frustrated with the opposing views. I needed to cut that out. I needed to cut my consumption of that out so that I could look more to Jesus. I chose to replace my consumption of talk radio with audiobooks and podcasts and the Bible on audio. What a difference in my, the way that I engaged people and talked to people and saw people. We have to be careful when we're so focused on our rights and our privileges and what's in front of us that we become unaware of our neighbors and indifferent to the work of the gospel in our community. Obviously, just to clarify again, no mass amputations. But he is calling us to a level of seriousness about sin. Sin has massive consequences. It's dangerous. We should be aware of that. A couple like oddities I just wanted to point out. Uh, You'll notice maybe in your Bible, depending on which translation you're reading, verse 44 and 46 aren't there. Just skips those numbers. Maybe if you have the ASV, it's in brackets, depending on the translation. They do different things. That's because, long story short, the most accurate manuscripts, it's not there. Uh, In some later manuscripts, uh, verse 48 is repeated three times, which is just interesting. It adds some poetic flow sort of to the passage. The other thing I wanted to point out is this word hell. Hell is one of these things that uh, I think it needs some clarity. 
because it evokes all this imagery in our mind. When we, we think of hell, our minds automatically, if we're honest, goes to maybe Looney Tunes or Dante's Inferno. We think pitchforks and horns. and That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The word here for hell is this word Gehana, which is this valley on the south side of the city of Jerusalem. This crazy place that in the Old Testament there was actually human sacrifices and cult worshiping happening here. King Josiah stopped that practice and he ultimately made that valley the city dump. The dump was perpetually on fire. They were using it, using fire to continually burn up the animal carcasses and the things that were thrown in this valley. So by Jesus' time, it had already become this symbol of divine punishment. There was this valley where there was a constant flame and the worm didn't die. Things were being consumed. So what's happening, Jesus has this picture in mind of this valley where this flame never ends. I think this passage is actually pointing to the fact that the systems, the way of thinking that's driving the disciples to argue who's the greatest, that way of thinking of power is coming to an end. Slowly burning, the worm never dying. All empires slowly burning. This way of thinking, and if the disciples continue down this path, that will be their result. Finally, let's, in verse 49 and 50, kind of summing this up, Jesus, it's an interesting passage, for everything will be salted with fire. It's an interesting one. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, if it has lost its saltiness, how will we make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. I think that in using this metaphor of salt, Jesus is reminding us of our position towards the surrounding world. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. I don't think we should necessarily just think of salt as this amazing seasoning that you can put on everything and it makes everything taste good. Uh, Salt in those days was essential. It was a major preservative. It was a huge part of everyday life. Salt was put on meat to fight corruption and decay. I think this is also a hyperlink, a tie back to Leviticus, where all sacrifices were to be salted before they were to be offered. If we are to be Jesus' disciples, we are to offer ourselves as salted sacrifices. Romans 12, chapter one, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Jesus is saying, do you, do you uh, don't, don't understand, Sorry. Don't you understand your position to the surrounding world? You're meant to be salt. You're meant to be an influential element in the surrounding world. We have a responsibility to our community that we've been placed in to be salt. We have a responsibility 
to be salt and to be to show the way of the kingdom. My life doesn't belong to me anymore. I have been bought with a price, Jesus says. What good is salt if it's lost its saltiness? And then he says, summing this all up, and I think this is the application for us, have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Jesus simply is saying, the conflict that you have with one another, boys, disciples, followers of Jesus, you're so concerned about what's, who's going to be great in the kingdom that it's eliminating any possibility of you being salt because you've turned inward. You focus so hard on who's going to be great in your own eyes, in your group, in your, your community, that you've turned inward and that's made you ineffective in your community. You've lost your saltiness. The thing that is supposed to set one of us, set us apart, is not a distinction of rank or worth, but the quality of our saltiness. How is our offering of ourselves in worship? And how are we living as a picture of Christ? Strife and arguments are resolved. Peace is restored when we recognize in one another a common commitment to Jesus and the gospel and a calling to servanthood. So this week, my call for us is that we would we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher, of the finisher of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, that we would, like Philippians chapter 2, that we would have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. That's our call, is that we would have in mind the things of Christ, that we would be aware of what Jesus is doing, that we would be aware of how our life lived out is reflecting the kingdom and the work of Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and Char and the band can come back up. Father, I thank you for grace. God, I thank you that You don't leave us alone, that you have given us a helper to walk this out. God, I ask that you would help us to live at peace with one another. That you would help us to see you and a common commitment for the gospel, even in those that we might disagree with on cursory issues. God, I ask that you would lead us and guide us that we would be a people that displays the gospel, that lives out the gospel, that we would be faithful to the calling that you put on our lives. We ask that you have your way in Jesus' name.